Well, good morning. You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans 14, and we're going to continue our study, Unity in Diversity, talking about uh, the body of Christ, talking about how we're all different in different ways, and yet we're called to be unified within um, this church. Uh, the body of Christ is, is God um, tells us clearly in his word. Uh, last week, uh, we looked at understanding this liberty to which we were, were called, and uh, we talked a little bit about defining liberty, um, defining freedom. Liberty is defined as the quality or state of being free, the power to do as one pleases, physical from, uh, freedom from physical restraint, freedom from arbitrary or despotic control, and uh, most importantly, as Christians... The freedom we enjoy in Christ is, it means that we are freed from the penalty of sin. That we are freed from what the Bible calls spiritual death. Uh, We're freed from eternal damnation. Um, A lot of Christians also, I would say most Christians understand some don't, but unfortunately, but most do, that they are freed from all the encumbrances of the ceremonial law. That that's not something that we have to keep in order to be saved. Um, we're freed from the dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. Um, and apart from sin, apart from something that is sinful, that the Bible clearly tells us that we shouldn't be doing, we are completely free as believers to enjoy all the good gifts that God has bestowed upon us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though as believers we're permitted to enjoy that freedom, we are not commanded to do so. And what does that mean? We're not obligated to exercise every freedom that we have in Christ all the time. And that's what Paul is addressing here in Romans 14. Um, He's coming to a point, remember the church back then was mixed. You had pagan people that got saved out of a pagan background. You had Jewish people that got saved out of a, of a, a Jewish background. You had believers, and you had all these people gathering together, and some of the people would invite somebody over for lunch. And they say, wow, that, this meat's pretty good. Where'd you get it? Oh, I picked it up at the market. It was, it was discounted because it was involved in that idol worship down there. But hey, I'm a believer. It doesn't matter to me. And if it was somebody from a pagan background or maybe a, a, a new believer, they would just be horrified. You're eating this meat that was sacrificed to idols? And it would blow their mind. And the strong Christian who served the meat understood that, you know what, we're free to eat all things in Christ. Some of us understand that a little better than others. (laughs) We like to eat everything we see, (laughs) right? That's not always good, nor is it profitable. But maybe that's a little confession on my part here this morning to you as the body of Christ, but I don't know. But we're not obligated to exercise every freedom that we have in Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul indicates that the more mature believers, the, 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 the believers who have really have a good grasp of their maturity in Christ, find that their freedoms in Christ become less and less important. You don't walk around going, oh, I am free to do this. I'm free to do that. And when you find somebody who maybe doesn't share that opinion, okay, today we we look at a lot of different things, and here they're talking about meat. They're talking about what day of the week you worship on. And we don't really have those issues today, but we're going to look at in a few moments here a couple things that may be some issues that we do. But I, I wanted you to understand last week that our Christian liberty is vertical. It's before the Lord. Okay, but it also we need to understand when we exercise that Christian liberty that it affects those on a horizontal plane. So even though the Lord has said, hey, you know what? If you want to have a glass of wine once in a while, go ahead. Don't get drunk. That's sin. Or if you want to use wine in cooking, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're taking it to an excess, that's wrong. But you may run into a brother or sister in Christ that comes from an alcoholic background, and if they would even see you drinking a glass of wine, it would devastate them. 
Okay, so we have to be conscious of that. We can't just march around saying, oh, I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want. And so we looked at some of the restrictions last week that the New Testament places on our liberty in Christ, our freedom in Christ. The first one was liberty is not to justify an evil or excess in our life. Uh, and we looked at First uh, Peter 2.16 where Peter says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. There's some people within the church that believe in free grace. You can do whatever you want if you're saved. It doesn't really matter because all your sins are forgiven. So go live it up. <laughs> That's not proper. That's not right. The Bible doesn't say that. Why? Because some of the things that they're doing are classified as sinful. All right? Secondly, we said that liberty is not to cause self-destruction in one's life or self-bondage. Okay, um, some people say, well, you know, they, they pride themselves in not having, a, for example, a TV in their home. But you know what? If you have a TV in your home and you're okay with that, if you're watching it 24 hours a day, you probably got a problem. Okay, uh, that's, not, that's not the right use of that freedom. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. He says, all things are lawful for me, but what? But not all things are profitable. I mean, I can eat 100 pounds of gummy bears if I wanted to. It probably wouldn't be good. I love gummy bears. I just do. I don't know why. I don't know if it's a texture or what, but sugar has something to do with it. But, but all things are lawful for me, Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. So, you know, gummy bears are one of those things for me, man. I just, like once I start eating them, I can't stop. You know, once in a while they have down here at Rite Aid, they, have, they don't have the little bag anymore. They've got this big, like, five-pound bag, right? And they're usually like 10 bucks, but once in a while they'll go on sale for like three ninety nine, four ninety nine. dollars Just can't help myself, you know? But it's, it's important to understand that, you know what? You shouldn't be mastered by anything, whether it be alcohol, whether it be drugs, whether it be um, uh, gummy bears, TV, whatever, all right? And later in the same epistle, Paul says in, in chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but what? Not all things edify. Not all things edify. All right, so you have to remind ourselves that we don't have liberty in Christ just to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We should make sure that it's not causing evil in our life, it's not causing self-destruction. And then the last thing we looked at last week was liberty is not meant to stunt one's spiritual growth. All right, so if you decide, hey, you know what? I'm not gonna come on a Wednesday night Bible study. I'm not gonna come. I have the freedom to do that. Well, yeah, you do. But that's probably not gonna help your spiritual growth. As a matter of fact, you would, in a way, you know, now some people would argue with that because the Bible does tell us what? Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, right? So, you know, when you, you have to be careful, and we're going to look at some of these things that are negotiable and non-negotiable in a second. But we have to remember that when we do things with our freedom in Christ that are holding us back spiritually, okay, then we probably don't want to continue that behavior. And that's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he talked about runners who run in the race, um, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And he says he doesn't just beat as one beating the air, but he, he does so with purpose. Okay, and that's how we should live our Christian lives. So let's look at our text for this morning, verses 13 to 23. And as we read through this, I just pray you follow along in your Bibles. And we're not going to get through this whole text this morning, but um, we'll get through a, a part of it. So he says in verse 13 of Romans chapter 14, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in, in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what, you, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But if it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Is sin. All right? And this, this text here speaks directly of our our spiritual uh, understanding, our spiritual liberty, our spiritual freedom in, in Christ. Now, when we look at these, these verses, uh, I, I'm reminded of a, a text. On this text, Pastor Legan Duncan one time, he, he commented that somebody should write a book on Romans 14. And he said, I would call it Romans 14 for dummies. <laughs> and he said, I would buy one. Because, you know, when we look at this text, as you read through Romans 14, you're going, what are they talking about? They're talking about meat and days and all these kind of weird things, you know. And uh, we're not concerned in our, in our day about the spiritual implications of eating or not eating meat. You know, so if you're a vegetarian here this morning, that's fine. But it doesn't have a spiritual significance. Um, and that's what Paul is addressing here. And he also mentions in verse 5, keeping certain days as holy days. Or he talks about drinking wine, which is, in verse 21, which is probably a a good modern-day illustration of this issue. But it's hard sometimes to apply these these verses to our lives today. Um, Sometimes I've heard Christians take these these verses and make it a rule book for new believers. You know, well, now that you're a new Christian, you you can't dress that way anymore. You have to dress this way, or you can't go there or do this or do that. Now, obviously, if you're a new person in Christ, there should be a change, a significant change in your life. God has transformed them. But, you know, we've all heard people tell other people, you know, you shouldn't dress like the world. You shouldn't look like the world. Um, You need to dress conservatively. You need to dress, you know, some leaders will say, you need to dress like me. (laughs) You know, um, and so everybody in their church dresses like them. Uh, and in some strict Christian circles, women are not allowed to wear makeup. Um, I like J. Vernon McGee. He says, ladies, if you need the makeup, pile it on. <laughs> you know? I mean, because the Bible doesn't speak to it, right? I mean, uh, sometimes in certain circles, men's are not allowed to have any facial hair. Um, in other circles, they're, they're condemned if they don't have facial hair. Right? They're encouraged to grow beards and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, when you stop and you think about it, there's a sordid list of things that we could go through that the Bible doesn't necessarily point out and say, this is wrong. And so in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, the main point there is that we should accept one another where we're at and not judge, not look down with contempt on someone who may be a weaker brother, or if they're a stronger brother and you're a weaker brother, you don't look at them and and exercising their freedom in Christ and, you know, call that sinful, just because it's sinful in your own eyes. Um, And so he's talking here about weaker and stronger brothers. And so it, it goes both ways. This doesn't give the weaker brother just the say all the time, because honestly, some people use their weakness, so-called, as a uh, kind of a club to beat everybody else over the head with. And see, you can be in the Lord for years and still be, con- be, still be considered a weak brother in the faith because maybe you haven't grown in maturity in Christ. Maybe you haven't been taught the Word of God. Maybe you haven't exposed yourself to the Scriptures the way you should have. And so your faith is a real faith. You're truly saved, but you're very fragile. You don't understand a lot of things about the character of God or the attributes of God or anything like that. And that's why it's important that we understand more and more about who God is. 
That's example, one example is that's why we're taking the men through a study on systematic theology. So we can better, as men, understand more about God. The God that saved us, the God that we served. And so you had people hung up on things that really don't matter. Um, and their tendency was to look upon their, their, their Jewish brothers who had an issue with them eating a certain kind of meat or not or whatever with contempt. And Paul was saying, don't, don't do that. And so he gets all the way down here to verse 13, and he says, you know what? In verse 13, he says, therefore, based on what I just told you in verses 1 through 12, that you should prefer the other person more than yourself and consider the weaker or the stronger brother, he says in verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And so that therefore is always, you've got to find out why it's therefore. So you go back to verses 10 through 12 and you see Paul reminds his readers that God alone is the one who's qualified and the authority to judge the minds and hearts of people. And it's, it's God that we will stand before one day. I'm not going to stand before you one day at the judgment seat and you're not going to stand before me. We're both all going to stand before the judgment seat of God, and we're going to have to give an account for our lives at that time. And so judgment is God's exclusive prerogative. Uh, Now, with that being said, it's important that we understand that when when you judge, okay, when you have the opportunity to judge, turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 1 through 5. Jesus addresses this. This was a major issue even in the time of Christ. He says in Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5, Judge not that you be judged. How many times have you heard that? We hear that all the time, right? You try to correct somebody. Oh, judge not that you be judged. The Bible says, well, yeah, it does say that. But what does it mean? That's a more important thing. Verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then he points out the wrong way to do this. Why do you see the speck, small little splinter, that is in your brother's eyes, brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's almost comical. You know, I mean, you picture this guy with this huge, like, two-by-four sticking out of his head, out of his eye, and he's telling you, you got something, hey, you got something in your eye. I mean, and he's trying to help you, but he can't even get close enough to you because the board keeps hitting you, you know, because it's coming out of his eyeball. It's just a hilarious illustration. And it's, it's meant to be that ridiculous because that's what we do so many times, don't we? We're so quick to judge when we have issues of our own to deal with. So he says in verse 4, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, um, I remember one time I went to a, a, a doctor, an eye doctor, and the doctor had like, I'll call them Mr. Magoo glasses. I mean, they were like Coke bottle bottom glasses on. I mean, you know, and, and, and I just thought, how ironic is this? You know, you're trying to fix my sight and, and you can't, I mean, if I took your glasses away, you probably, it'd probably be dark. I mean, it was just really, he just really had bad eyesight. And I asked him if anybody ever commented, oh, I get jokes all the time, you know, about that. And, and this was a long time ago before they had all the corrective surgery and everything. But the point is this, is that's, that's the illustration here in Matthew. That's how ridiculous it would, would seem. And so the first point here is we don't want to cause our brother or sister in Christ to stumble. All right? And, and it's an unloving, unloving attitude uh, that people have sometimes, and they kind of have this superiority uh, that they're strong in Christ and they have all these freedoms. And, you know, sorry for you, you, you weaker Christian, you can't do this. And one day maybe you'll grow up and, and learn, you know, the, the better ways of life or whatever. They had an attitude of self righteousness. 
Okay, And so when you stop and you think about it, superiority, and then you have the, the, the weak brother who thinks everything is sin, so they don't do anything, and they're walking around thinking, oh, look at me, look at what I'm not doing. And they have their little list of do's and don'ts as Christians. And see, that's what was going on here. And that's why he says, they judge one another. Do not pass judgment on one another any longer. It indicates that it was going on. It was actively going on. And they were wrongful judgments. They were judgments that we have no authority to make on, against people. Um, sometimes, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, they did this. They, they, they said thank you to me. But, you know, I can just tell by the way they said it. And, you know, their motives were not pure. How would you ever even know that? You could never judge someone's motives. Only God judges what's in the heart. All right? And so we, we make certain assumptions sometimes that we shouldn't make. And when he uses this word here, uh, a judge, he uses the same Greek um, word that's used back in, in verse uh, 3, okay? And he uses different, different uh, versions of it here in verse 13. And it's the same phrase, let us not judge one another, or let us not pass judgment on one another, verse 3, verse 4, verse 10. And then in the following phrase there, um, it's, it's used a little differently. But it has the idea when you say, well, should we be judgmental? Being judgmental basically carries the idea of a negative idea of that you're denouncing somebody. Okay, you think you're better than them or whatever. You're being judgmental. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use our best judgment which refers to making a careful decision. All right, so we have to be careful when we say, oh, well, we can't judge anything. You know, I've heard people who point out heresies within the church, and they'll point out false teachers, and people will say, oh, you know, judge not lest you be judged. We shouldn't be judging. We shouldn't. Oh, yes, we should. Because there are certain things that we are called to make judgments on. And that's um, the difference between being judgmental, and making the proper judgment. Um, Like in the New Testament, for example. The New Testament does not forbid the drinking of alcoholic beverages. It just doesn't. You can't find a verse that says, thou shalt not drink alcohol. It doesn't say that. It says you should not get drunk, which usually if you drink alcohol, that's kind of where you're going. It's headed, so you got to be careful. Okay, but I've heard some Christians say, oh, I don't even cook with anything like that. Well, that's kind of ridiculous. That's being legalistic over something the Bible doesn't speak to. Now, if you have a drinking problem, that makes sense, right? I mean, I had an older brother who was an alcoholic for years. I remember when he would come to my, when I was single, I just rented a room, and, and he would come and stay with me a couple nights or whatever when he was traveling. And he had since come to know the, Christ, he, know the Lord and straightened himself out, and he's with the Lord now. But, but back then, I remember, after he would leave, I mean, I'd go into my medicine cabinet and I'd find vials of, of empty vodka bottles. I'd find them in the closet. I'd find, and I'm thinking, wow, he didn't seem drunk when he was here. I mean, that's how bad of an alcoholic he was. He would just drink it like water, okay? Um, so I would always, after I discovered this, I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm going to hide the mouthwash. I'm going to hide anything that has alcohol, aftershave, whatever, because I didn't know how bad he was. And, and there's some alcoholics that do that. He, he wouldn't do that. He'd just go buy the alcohol and drink the alcohol, which kind of made more sense for him probably. But I, I think that in the long run, you know, I, I would never even dream of sitting down with my brother and saying, hey, you want a glass of wine before dinner? I just wouldn't do that, even though it would be my freedom in Christ to do it if I was not getting drunk on it. All right? And so the Bible has certain things that it doesn't uh, uh, speak about. And so sometimes, even though we have the freedom to do something, what he's saying here in verse 13 is that something could become a stumbling block. It could become a hindrance. Uh, It could cause that weaker brother to fall back into a sinful behavior or just cause him stunt in his spiritual growth, and you never want to do that. So on what issues are we able to negotiate on Well, I put down some things on on some slides here. The primary issues, okay, the non-negotiables, we'll call them. First of all, we'll deal with doctrinal issues. And this is important to understand. 
All right? Um, first of all, we do not negotiate on the idea that Scripture is inerrant. It's without error. That's non-negotiable. We don't negotiate about the sovereignty of God, as we sang this morning. We don't negotiate about the divinity of Jesus. We don't even negotiate about the Trinity or the atonement or the gospel or the idea that within the church God appoints men as pastors and leaders, as elders. That's a non-negotiable. Why? Because the Scripture speaks very clearly. And you might be sitting here this morning and say, Whoa, I, you know... In a previous church, we had a woman who was a pastor. She was a wonderful. That's great. She may be, have a lot of different gifts and be a real blessing to the body. But I'm just pointed out that Paul forbids, God's word forbids, a pastor to be a woman. Or an elder to be a woman. You can have what they call deaconesses within the church, which is part of the, the leadership that's serving But the Bible doesn't stutter about these things. So these are doctrinal non-negotiables. All right? And then you look at the moral side. You say, well, what morally would you not negotiate on? We wouldn't negotiate on marriage. A man and a woman for life. That's what we believe. That's what the Bible teaches. That's non-negotiable. We wouldn't negotiate about abortion. God created life. Life should be... Um, respected. We believe in the sanctity of life. We would not negotiate about homosexuality. We wouldn't say, well, you know, some people, I guess, is okay. No. The Bible forbids it. It's very clear. All right? It doesn't mean that we don't reach out and and try to minister to those, but the Bible's very clear on these things. And then, more modernly, we have the issue with gender. Right? Um, We don't believe that that is a negotiable item. We believe that God created you the way you are. It doesn't really matter whether you think you're a woman or a man. It's irrelevant. Okay, it's the way God created you that matters. And we see within our society when people make these kind of things, what, negotiable, the havoc that it, it wreaks on, on everybody. It just causes confusion. So you have primary issues. What would we look at as far as secondary issues that are negotiable as a church? Okay, we would consider spiritual gifts a negotiable thing. In other words, when you go through our membership class, we say, you know what? We believe that God used certain gifts to start the church. Tongues, healings, things like that. He actually gifted individuals to do these miraculous things because the church was just getting started and they needed kind of a, a, an ability to, to give, give uh, authority to these guys. And so God enabled them to do certain things that no longer happen today by individuals. In other words, God's not in the business today, we would believe, of gifting individuals with the gift of healing. If I had the gift of healing, I could go over to Happy Grant's house and go, brother, be healed. And he would get up and he would be in church here this morning. That's the gift of divine healing. Now, don't confuse that with say, and sit there and go, well, don't you believe God heals? Of course God heals. That's what we're praying. God, heal happy. Heal others who are sick. Okay? But he doesn't have to use an individual to do it. And see, back then, they had a literal gift of healing. As a matter of fact, pretty much sickness was was driven out of society back then because Christ and his disciples were going around healing everybody. And people were flocking to them. That's why there was so many crowds following Jesus because they knew that he had the ability to heal them. And the same thing with his followers. But there are certain people that believe that that gift is still around today and there's certain word of faith teachers you can see them on tv usually they want your money but you know they they say that you know uh if you just send so much then god will give you a gift of healing and all this stuff there's a church up north bethel that teaches they have classes that teach on how to have this gift you know if you have to be taught how to have a spiritual gift guess what you don't have the gift Okay, I mean, this is kind of common sense, right? Because the Holy Spirit gives these gifts by his sovereign will. 
So, you know, I would have never dreamed of God giving me the gift of teaching or pastor. I mean, I just would not have, that wouldn't have been number one on my list because I don't necessarily like getting in front of people and teaching and doing things like this. I find it beneficial, but I don't, you know, boy, I just, I'm, I'm not a person that likes to perform and be in front of everybody. And, you know, um, th- that's just not me. And so God uniquely gifted me out of my own comfort zone. And sometimes that happens. And so, as far as spiritual gifts go, what we mean by negotiable is that, you know what, you can be a Christian and speak in tongues. Even though as a church we would say, you know what, we believe those gifts are no longer around. Um, Biblically, the biblical gift of speaking in languages. And so, you know, we wouldn't say if you said, well, you know, I speak in tongues, oh, you must not be a Christian. We would never say that. That's not our call to make. So they're negotiable. That doesn't mean we don't dial down and teach what we believe the Scripture teaches. We're a church who's um, in that area is, a, is considered a cessationist church. We believe that some gifts ceased when the church was established, and then, you know, others rose up for the better uh, edification of the whole body of Christ. But if you believe something else, that's not a, that's not a non-negotiable. A second issue is eschatology, or the study of future things. Okay, there's a lot of people who believe a lot of things about when Christ will return. Is it pre-wrath, you know, mid-trib, pre-trib, when's the millennium? All these things. And we have a pretty much dialed down to what we believe as a church. Okay, we believe that there will be a rapture. We believe that it will happen before the tribulation. We believe that Christ will come back physically to earth for a millennial reign of a literal thousand years. We believe that Israel and the church are two distinct things. We don't believe in replacement theology where when the church came along, that that replaced Israel, so Israel is no longer needed. It's no longer important. All the, all the blessings that were meant for Israel are now applied to the church. That's called replacement theology. We don't believe that. We don't believe the scripture teaches that. And we can sit down and show you that. But if you say, well, I disagree, we're not going to say, oh, <laughs> You know, no. Why? Because you know what? It's an area of negotiation. Nobody has 100% of that truth. I believe wholeheartedly in a rapture, a pre-trib rapture. And, and, and I think it just makes sense with all the illustrations that are given throughout Scripture. But, it, you know, if you want to stick around for three and a half years and put up with all the stuff, well, if that's what you want to believe, go ahead. Or if you want to believe there's no rapture at all and you're going to, whatever, whatever makes your boat float, but you have to grapple with the Scriptures to get there. All right? And so that would be a negotiable thing. The other thing is church polity. You know, there are some Baptist churches that don't have elders. They would have what they call deacons. And so they have a board of deacons. And if the board of deacons says, well, you know what? Um, the, the flooring in the fellowship hall needs to be replaced. Uh, so we have to have a congregational meeting. And we have to bring somebody in. And we have to have them show all the different colors of all the different tile that would be possible that we would pick. And then we're all going to vote on it as a congregation. There's some churches that operate this way. I don't know how they do it, but they do it, okay? Um, There are other churches like ours that we believe that God has given the elder board certain authority um, to oversee certain things within the church, okay? And outside of pretty much like hiring new staff or or, um, selling the church property, things like that, um, you know, we make a lot of decisions concerning the church, And we don't run to the congregation with every little decision. That would wear you out, trust me. All right? You wouldn't want that. Okay? But part of our duty is to keep you informed. You know, if next week you showed up and, you know, the the chairs were all black, you'd probably go, "Uh, what's going on? (laughs) Well, we just spent $20,000 on new chairs. Why? Why? Why would you do that? The other chairs were fine. You would call what? Our credibility into question. Why are they making, why are they spending all this money doing things like this that are not needed to do? But if we could show you, here's why we want to do that and bring you along the way and and keep you informed and, and you kind of agree, then obviously that would be the right way to do it. 
And so you can see where church polity or church government, that's basically what that word means, the way you run a church, could be different for different churches. Just because Baptist churches don't have elders, they would consider the pastor the elder, and then they have deacons, all right? Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make them outside of the body of Christ, okay? So those are, are non-negotiables. And then you have a, uh, another category here, personal convictions, And see, here's where it gets kind of dicey. Here's where people within the church think that somehow what they believe is chapter verse for everybody. All right? There are some people who believe that if you're a Christian family and you send your children to a non-Christian school, that's the epitome of sin. What are you doing? Or to send them to any school. You know, the only way to do it is homeschool. You can't, can't send them out outside of your home. There's people that believe that. Um, I've seen Christian families who raise their kids up and then send them off to a secular university. Frankly, some of them come back great. Some of them come back not so great. <laughs> you know, they fill their head with mush and their faith wasn't really there to begin with. So they turn their back on God. And, and then the parents wonder what happened. So, but you can't find a chapter verse that says you're, all your kids have to go to Christian school. It doesn't happen that way. Another thing, Bible versions. We use here the ESV, the English Standard Version. A lot of times in my studies, I'll use the New American Standard Version. Um, or King James sometimes. So you can't make that an issue because the Bible doesn't make it an issue. All right? Style of music is another, another thing, or the clothes, clothing styles. I heard a, a pastor recently telling a youth group that those kids that are wearing those skinny jeans, they're sinful. And I'm like, it's so ridiculous. You know, I mean, just because you have on a pair of skinny jeans... Obviously, I don't wear skinny jeans, <laughs> if, just in case you're wondering. And if I did, you wouldn't want to see that. We don't even go there. But anyway, um, but the important thing is this. The important thing is this. Um, you, you, those kind of things are kind of irrelevant in a lot of ways. Now, does the Bible speak to modesty? Definitely. Okay. So sometimes as a youth pastor, I had to talk to the, the, the females in the group and say, look, you know, you, you can't wear these short, short, short shorts to youth group. This is not good. It, it happened a lot down in the, the desert. It happened a lot in churches down in the desert because it was always so stinking hot down there. It was 100 degrees, over 100 degrees. And you had women scantily clad coming to worship God. And on a regular basis, almost weekly, our pastor would have to go and call them aside and say, look. You know, do you have a shawl or something you can put? I mean, you just can't come to church this way. You don't understand what you're doing, you know. And I don't think most of them did it purposefully. It was just comfortable. But, you know, the Bible speaks of dressing, what? Modestly. Okay, you don't want to cause somebody to stumble. And the same thing with, with facial hair. And so we have all these different areas from society to society, from person to person. But the principle never changes. Okay, the principle simply says this, the loving, caring, strong Christian will determine in his or her heart to be sensitive to any weakness in a fellow believer and to avoid doing anything, including what is innocent in itself and maybe otherwise permissible that might cause one to morally or spiritually stumble. There's, there's a lot of different ways that you could look at that. I've talked to, to uh, brothers who have come to Christ, and you start talking to them, and, and um, you find out, wow, they're a really good guitarist, or they're a really good um, drummer. I mean, they used to play, like, with major bands, okay? And you're going, wow, why aren't you on our worship? I don't do that anymore. Don't do it anymore. Can you? <laughs> oh, yeah, I can play the guitar, but I don't, I don't do it anymore. I, I choose not to do it. And it's always frustrating for me because it's like, ah, we could use you, you know. But they just are not at a point in their spiritual. It just reminds them too much, right, of their old life. And to make them do that would cause them to stumble. So you have to be gracious and be understanding in that situation. 
And so Paul says, first of all, do not cause your brother to stumble. And, and that's, you know, we, we need to be really careful about that. Secondly, he says in verse 14 and 15 here, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. What is Paul pointing out here? He's saying, don't grieve your brother. And a lot of these principles overlap. You can kind of see, okay, stumble, grieve. But it it is a distinction here. Um, The second way to build up fellow believers without offending them is to be careful not to say or to do anything that might cause them to be spiritually grieved or spiritually hurt. Um, As far as non-sinful things, we're not talking about you know, things that are sinful. We're talking about things of preference, opinions. Non-sinful things, he points out very clearly. He says, I, am pers- I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing in itself is unclean. Nothing. So you can't come and say, well, the reason I don't eat meat is because, you know, the Old Testament. No. The Bible says, you know what? In the argument of eating food and things like that, you can eat whatever you want. All right? We're not held under the Old Testament laws. We just aren't. Now, some of them were put in place because the principles were healthy. Okay? It was healthy to, to, to abide by them. So if you want to do it for a purpose of health, that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But don't make it a chapter verse kind of a thing because you're going to end up trying to pull verses out of context, and we don't ever want to do that. And so he wasn't stating a personal opinion or preference about such things, but he says here that he was convinced in the Lord Jesus. In other words, he knew by divine revelation what he was saying was right. And Paul, remember what he was when he was Saul, right? He was what? A Pharisee, all right? He had to be very careful. He had extreme views about what he could eat and not eat when he was of that persuasion. But now he understood with absolute certainty the truth that the Lord even declared to Peter in Acts 10, 15. What God has cleansed no longer, what? Consider unholy. That divine cleansing refers directly to the multitude of animals that Peter was commanded to eat that were ceremonially unclean according to the Mosaic law. It referred to God's full and impartial acceptance of believing Gentiles into the church. So the, the reason God did this was so, so that everybody would be on an equal playing field. You wouldn't have the, the Jews over here and the, the Gentiles over there. No, we're all one in Christ. The Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, right? So it's, we're all one in Christ. We're one body in Christ. Mark chapter 7, Jesus says in verse 15, there is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. All right? That's that's an incredible thing that Christ said. In other words, if you're a believer, there's nothing from outside that you can actually put in your body that will defile you. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, Paul assured Timothy, God has created all foods to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth, for everything God has created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In Titus chapter 1 verse 15, he writes, to the pure all things are pure. So the strong Christian is therefore entirely right in his conviction that he is at liberty to enjoy whatever he wants. If that's what you believe here this morning, there's nothing wrong with that, unless the Lord declares something specifically sinful. The weak Christian, on the other hand, is wrong in his understanding about some of those things, but he's not wrong in the sense of being heretical or immoral. He just has a misunderstanding. He's wrong in the sense of not having a, a complete and mature understanding and, and so his conscience is, is unduly sensitive to those things. And you have to be gracious to that person. 
And that's why he says here, to him who thinks anything is unclean, to what? To him it is unclean. Don't try to convince him otherwise. You know, we don't have to conform everybody to the same agenda. We have to stop and say, okay, you know what? They're just not there yet. Just let it go. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about this. If you turn over there in verses 4 to 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul gives this explanation to the church because they were dealing with a lot of the same stuff. Um, it says in, in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, <laughs> we know that an idol has no real existence. In other words, there is no idols. There's no other gods. There's only one God. There's no God but one, he says. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things, and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So if you grew up in a home where you sacrificed stuff to idols and you weren't allowed to eat that, and then you became a Christian, and you come over to my house for lunch, and I serve you a piece of meat that was sacrificed to idols, knowing that you have that background, I'm really doing something wrong. I'm wrong. Even though I have the freedom to eat whatever I want. It's my house, right? But on the other hand, I should be sensitive to the person coming. Um, It's likely that every Christian has a weak spot regarding our conscience. We all have something. It may not be anything to do with meat, okay? I mean, having to do with drinking or whatever. I mean, but we all have an area that we can, if we just sit here for a second, what's this area for me? You could think of something. Um, in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, he, did not, he didn't claim here to be free of every spiritual deficiency, but he testified before the Roman governor that he did this best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and men. In other words, you know what? It may be the freedom that you have to do something, but even if I have a hint that it may cause you to struggle or stumble or whatever, I should probably pull the reins in and not do that, okay, out of sensitivity to you. And I don't want to have to go to bed at night lying there thinking, oh, I wonder if they're offended by what I did or what I said or whatever. You have to be careful. Um, So if we ourselves consider anything to be unclean, then he says to us, It is just that. It's unclean. And the conscience is something that God has given us, right? If your conscience is telling you don't do that, then don't do it. The moment you start not listening to your own conscience uh, is very dangerous. 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul says, If you just continually turn off your conscience, it becomes seared as with a a branding iron. In other words, after a while, God can't even work through your conscience anymore because you don't even listen to your own conscience anymore. That's, you know, somebody that is of a a criminal element and over years of crime, and they've gotten away with it maybe, and they get caught, and you see these interviews with these guys in prison, and it's like, well, why are you in here? Oh, I killed, you know, five people. Why did you do it? Well, I need their money. They're not sorry. They're not. They're saying it with a straight face. They're not laughing. They're nothing. You know, they're, they're just, their conscience is gone. Um, and, and so his emphasis here is that it's, it's dealing with this, this food, okay, if, if you're going to eat. He says if it's clean for anyone who thinks it's, if it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean, then it's unclean. If that person thinks so, even though it may not be. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So if you find somebody who's weak in this area and you say, you know what, they just need to grow up, you know, and you have them over and instead deal with it. I'm going to have a glass of wine. I don't care if you're an alcoholic or not. You're new in Christ. You need, you need to ask God to give you the strength to deal with this or whatever, you know, whatever the issue may be. That's the wrong attitude to take. And this word grieved here really has the basic meaning of causing pain, distress, or grief. 
Remember in John chapter 21, verse 17, it's used by John when he described Peter's reaction when Jesus asked him a third time. Remember, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says what? Peter was grieved. Peter was grieved. It's used even of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. We cause him pain, distress, or grief. And so we shouldn't go around wishing to grieve other brothers and sisters in Christ. And what's tragic is when a Christian hurts a brother or sister in the Lord, particularly over matters that really don't matter. You know what I'm saying? We're not talking about sinful issues here. We're not talking about sinful behavior. We're talking about preferences. Um. I had somebody tell me one time after church, they said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I might go home and watch a football game. Oh, I'd never watch football on Sunday. Well, you must not watch much football because usually that's when they play it. So I don't know what to tell you. And I just kind of laughed it off. But I could tell by their attitude. They were, they were you know, so I'm not, you know, that individual was not on the list to invite over for the Super Bowl or something. I mean, you know. Um, and you have to be careful, right? I mean, this doesn't give you the freedom to just, you know, expose yourself unduly to sinful practices and stuff and just say, well, I'm free in Christ to do it. You know, there's, there's some people that can sit through movies and it just doesn't bother them, okay? There's other people that you go to the movie, even if it's a PG movie. I mean, the thing that worries me the most, because usually I kind of vent those things, vet those things pretty good, filter them out, but is the the, uh, what do they call them? The previews. Okay, if you go to a PG-13 movie, you don't know what you're going to see on the screen. Okay, and I'm of the persuasion I can watch guys shoot each other and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't bother me at all. Okay, but you put some sexual thing on the screen, then that, that causes me a big stumbling block. Okay, so, and, and there's different people with different things. But the Bible specifically says that we shouldn't go out of our way to you know, put these things in front of our face just because we are allowed to do so. It goes under that heading of, you know what, is it going to encourage your spiritual growth or hinder your spiritual growth? And you have to stop and you have to be sensitive to that. And so he says a Christian who, whose careless use of freedom in Christ can cause somebody so much harm, so much grief, and if you do that purposely... He says, you're no longer walking in love. You're no longer walking in love. Um, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says this in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do eat. But take care that this is right of yours, that this right of yours does not have knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Or excuse me, verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. All right? And that's literally what he's kind of saying here as well. He's saying don't grieve your brother or sister in Christ to the point that you're causing them spiritual harm. Uh, verse, uh, verse, verse 15, he says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. So if someone comes up to you and says, you know, blah, 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 this bothers me. You know, you shouldn't have the attitude, well, who cares? I'm going to continue to do that because it's my right. No, you should be willing to be gracious, okay? It doesn't mean you change your whole view and, and you become like them, all right? That's not what it's saying at all. And remember, these are things that are on non-negotiables, or I mean, these are things that are negotiable, right? Dressing and things like that. These are not uh, we're not addressing sinful behaviors here. And then the, the end of verse 15 here, he says, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. This is a third principle here, just quickly. Don't devastate them spiritually. You know, it's kind of getting worse. At first, just stumbling block. 
okay? And then you're grieving them. And now you're, you're really harming someone in Christ. Um, destroy doesn't mean, you know, destruction. It means devastation. You know, um, if you've ever been through a very emotional time, you might just say, I just feel like I'm destroyed. Well, you're, you're still here, you know. You're just devastated by everything that's going on. Uh, Vine says this, the idea is not extinction, but ruin, loss, not of being, but of well-being. All right, so it's not saying that, you know, you're, that person is no longer going to be around. You're literally going to destroy them, but their well-being is going to be destroyed. And it's, it's used in the New Testament to indicate eternal damnation, which applies to unbelievers. But even with that meaning, the word does not mean extinction. All right? Some people believe that when you go to hell, you're annihilated, a nihilist. That's not, that's not scriptural. Okay? That's an eternal dwelling place of the lost. So he says there to destroy him for whom Christ died. And so we don't want to think of this as far as salvation. It's not talking about salvation. If they're in Christ, they're saved. But their spiritual life could be a real wreck based on your behavior and your ungracious attitude uh, of, of practicing things around them that may be offensive to them. You have to be uh, willing to, to kind of rein that in and say, okay, you know what, even though I'm allowed to do these things, I'm going to, you know, pull off doing these. I'm not going to do this because I know it bothers this person for whatever reason. Um, and then he says, there for whom Christ died. It's, it's used here to describe believers. All right, when Christ died on the cross... We, we, we have a theological term we use, and we'll close with this, but we call limited atonement. Okay? And, and this is what it's getting to here, because he says, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, some people look at that and they say, well, I have a problem with limited atonement. What does limited atonement mean? Or another way to say it, it's called particular redemption. All right? It's the idea that Christ sacrificed his life on the cross on behalf of the elect who come to faith. Okay? Um, In other words, when Jesus died on the cross... You can ask the question this way. Did he literally pay for the sins of everybody in the entire world? Because if he did, guess what? Nobody would be in hell. If he paid for their sins. Because a just God cannot take someone who has their sins paid for and punish that person. That would be like a judge who, you know, you got a traffic violation on, on Jefferson and you got a $100 bill and you go down <clears throat> to the judge. And the judge says, you know what, you owe $100. But somebody else already paid your fine. But you know what, I'm going to make you pay it as well. That would be an unjust judge. He couldn't do that. It doesn't matter who pays the fine. The fact is the fine has to get paid. And God is not an unjust judge. And so when Christ died on the cross, we believe that his atonement was limited in the sense that it paid for the sin of all those who would ever put their faith or trust in Christ as Savior. Now, a lot of people say, wait a minute, doesn't the Scripture say otherwise? You think of John 1.29. It says, the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Sins of the, the world. Or in John chapter 3, verse 15 to 16. Whoever believes um, in the Son of Man may have eternal life. For God so loved the what? The world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It kind of qualifies itself there. Or John 6, 51, I am the bread, the living bread that came out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also, which I shall give 
For the life of the world is my flesh, Jesus said. Or Romans 10, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 14, where, where Paul says the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. Uh, or even over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Paul writes this, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony born at the proper time. In 1 Timothy 4.10 it says, We have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Or 2 Peter 2.1 Peter warned against false teachers among you, listen to this, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. These are heretical teachers. And it says that the master bought them, bringing swift destruction upon them. In other words, the Lord paid a price sufficient to save even those unbelievers who corrupt his word and blaspheme his name. But, even though that payment was sufficient, all right, it may not be effective for everyone. Because the only way that you will receive that payment is for you to come to Christ. You have to acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. You have to acknowledge your own sinful before a holy God and say, God save me. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation or satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Also, 1 John 4.14, we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. See, God's provision, beloved, of the atonement without limit is really mentioned over and over in the Old Testament. When the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he made it on behalf of all the people of the assembly. All the Israelites. Leviticus 16.33. And the scope of the sacrifice was unlimited in its sufficiency. It was sufficient for everyone. But it was limited in its application. The act did not cleanse the sins of even those believing Jews, but it prefigured God's future offering of atonement by the supreme high priest, Jesus Christ, who would sacrifice himself for the sins of the entire world and then apply that sacrifice to his elect. That's why we have both of those sides of the coin. And that's why, do I understand how they meld together? Not necessarily. But you have to be very careful when you speak of Jesus dying just for the elect. Because that's not what Scripture says. The Scripture says that he died for the sins of the entire world. But that sacrifice was only applicable to those who would come to Christ. And who would come to Christ to seek forgiveness? The elect. All right? And so it's, it's a very important thing to draw out of the text here because it's something that we all struggle with in our understanding. But Scripture states both of those things very, very clearly. And, you know, you, some people will say, well, that world doesn't mean the whole world. Well, yes, it does. But that doesn't mean the whole world is going to be saved. That would be universalism. All right? Those who will be saved are those who are elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians tells us. Unfortunately, we don't have the mind nor the capacity to understand who the elect is and who isn't. Only God can do that. That's why the Great Commission is what? Go out and preach just to the elect? No. Go out and preach to every creature. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. 
and respond to the gospel. Some will, some won't. That's not our call. We're called to be obedient to the task that God has given us. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us not to cause other brothers or sisters to stumble by our freedom in Christ or cause grief in their life or even to devastate them spiritually to cause them to be hindered in their spiritual growth. And Lord, we, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And Lord, we do pray for those who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, you call us to preach this message of good news to all who yet to understand and come to faith in Christ. And so, Lord, we do that and we pray that it's, it's never too late to cry out to God and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It doesn't matter the words you use. It's the condition of your heart. The idea is that you're coming before God. You're acknowledging your sinfulness and you're acknowledging God's holiness and you're acknowledging that gap in between and you're saying, God, the only way that I can cross this, this gap between my sinfulness and God's holiness is through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you that his sacrifice on Calvary was sufficient to pay for our sins. And we thank you that when we cry out to you, Lord, forgive me, be merciful to me. You apply that sacrifice personally to us in Christ. And we pray, Lord, as believers that as we learn and understand more about each other and and grow as a body here, that you would uh, give us grace, that we would think of the other person more than ourselves, and that we would not think of ourselves more than what we should. Lord, that we would be humble in Christ because we know that you have called us to serve you, to love you, to minister to your body in a way that would be honoring to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.